Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. This week, we're starting off with the educational environment. We are switching up the order this week because it made more sense for me to talk about the educational environment because it's where I practice. The chapter starts off by going over federal legislation and litigation. It's basically a big old history lesson. Things have been changed and amended over time. What I'm going to do is start by going over the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. This law was the precursor to the current Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. This law provided free and appropriate public education to all children with disabilities ages 6 to 21 years old. The major concepts were zero reject, least restrictive environment, right to due process, non-discriminatory evaluation, parent participation, individualized education programs, and related services. Zero Reject states that all children, regardless of disability, are able to receive an education. We will go over the least restrictive environment in a little bit, but basically it states that children with disabilities are to be educated in a school with typical peers to the maximum extent possible. Right to due process means that the parents have a right to an impartial hearing, the right to be represented by counsel, and the right to a verbatim transcript of a hearing and written findings. Non-discriminatory evaluation is just exactly how it sounds. Parent participation states that active participation of parents is encouraged and they should be the child's best advocate. The IEP is a comprehensive program outlining the specific special education, related services, and supports the child is to receive. It also includes annual goals and is evaluated every year. Related services are to be provided according to the IEP. They include transportation, physical therapy, speech-language pathology, occupational therapy, nursing, and many others. Next, I am going to go over the IDEA as we know it currently. The IDEA has four sections, A through D. Part A is titled General Provisions. This part basically states the purpose of the IDEA. The purpose is to improve educational outcomes for children with disabilities and ensure equal opportunity, full participation, independent living, 
and economic self-sufficiency. It encompasses more than just traditional academics, but also is intended to prepare children for independent living and self-sufficiency. IDEA Part B outlines the right for children three to 21 years of age to a free and appropriate public education that emphasizes special education and related services designed to meet the child's unique needs to prepare them for further education, employment, and independent living. Part B has a few different components. First is the least restrictive environment. Basically, this states that children should be educated in a typical classroom to the best extent possible. Obviously, this is not feasible for all children. At IEP meetings each year, all of the different environments are discussed and evaluated one by one, and reasons are given as to why each environment is appropriate or inappropriate for the child. For example, a child who requires equipment or assistance that a typical classroom cannot accommodate for or provide may benefit from a special school or setting rather than an integrated classroom. The goal is to allow the child to be educated in the environment that will not restrict their abilities and allow them to flourish, hence the term least restrictive environment. The next part of IDEA Part B is transition planning. Transition planning must occur from early intervention to preschool, preschool to school age, and from age 16 years to exit from school. Sheila is going to go over this a little more in depth later on this episode. Assistive technology refers to everything from communication devices to adapted seating to mobility devices. The child must have access to any piece of assistive technology that is required for them to fully access their school environment. They must also be listed in the IEP. Early intervening services and response to intervention are the final section of Part B. Early intervening services focuses on children from kindergarten to grade three that would benefit from additional academic services and behavioral support to succeed in the general education environment. Response to intervention, or RTI, is an evaluation and intervention process that is used to monitor student progress and make data-based decisions about the need for and provision of instructional modification, evidence-based intervention, and increasingly intensified services. Part C of the IDEA we've gone over in our last episode, but it includes provisions related to formula grants that assist states in providing early intervention services for infants and toddlers birth through age three. Part D includes provisions related to discretionary grants to support state personnel development, technical assistance and dissemination, technology, and parent training and information centers. The book doesn't really go in depth on either of those other than Part C. It doesn't really go super in depth into Part D, but if you want more information on that, um, we list the website a little later on in this episode. Next, we are going to go over Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Section 504 is a comprehensive anti-discrimination statute. Section 504 is designed to ensure that 
proper federal funding recipients provide equal opportunity to people with disabilities. A 504 plan is different from an IEP and that a student with a 504 plan does not necessarily need all of the related services and assistance as a child with an IEP. However, a student with a 504 still does have a documented disability that affects major life activities. A general example is a student who maybe has a mild learning disability and needs extended time on tests. This student would not necessarily qualify for an IEP, but could receive extended time on tests through Section 504. MedBridge does a great job of going over the differences between an IEP and Section 504 in their school-based lectures. Be sure to check these out if you are still confused or have questions on this. The American with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, provides civil rights to people with disabilities and regulates employment and public service. This includes things such as public transportation and public accommodations. While the ADA does not directly affect children in school, it supports them in the community. It applies to things such as public transportation, public buildings, and community activities. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act emphasizes equal access to education for all children. This was amended into the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001. This ensures that all children receive a high quality education. It is so crazy to me how all of this was going into effect while I was in elementary school when it feels like it should have been eons ago. I mean, I guess eons is all relative. I'm not that old, but this is making me feel very old. The book then goes in to describe some specific cases that have to do with the least restrictive environment and related services that you can read on your own time. The last thing I will go over in regards to legislature is the extended school year or ESY. ESY refers to the summer program that school districts offer for children with disabilities. ESY is designed to maintain current level of skills that the child has gained over the course of the school year and limit regression. In order to qualify for ESY, the child must show significant regression following school breaks. ESY must be a part of the IEP, and it does not mean that this child goes to school five days a week for 52 weeks. The child still gets normal school breaks, and there is usually a break before and after ESY starts. Each year for my students, I have to write a justification and recommendation as to why the child needs to attend an ESY program. Not all kids qualify. Phew, okay, take a deep breath. That was a lot of boring information. Like I said, the Mebridge lectures did a great job describing all of this information in a nice, concise way. So take a look at those. If you want more information on the IDEA, head to their website at sites.ed.gov forward slash IDEA. Let's move on to models of team interaction. Unidisciplinary means that the professional work, work the professional works independently of all others. Interdisciplinary is when members of the same profession work together without significant communication with members of other professions. Multidisciplinary 
means that there are discipline-specific roles that are well-defined and professionals work independently, but the value of contribution, but they value the contribution of other disciplines. Interdisciplinary means that there are well-defined discipline-specific roles, but individuals from different disciplines work together cooperatively on planning, implementing, and evaluating services. In the law, multidisciplinary is used to describe an interdisciplinary model, which can cause some confusion. Transdisciplinary is what we talked about in the NICU, that professionals work across disciplines. Collaborative model is when transdisciplinary is combined with the integrated service delivery model. Professionals provide services across disciplinary boundaries as part of the natural routine of the school and community. One of the ways that I read when we were studying to remember intra and interdisciplinary was that like an intrastate is highway that just goes within one state and an interstate is a highway that goes between states. So thinking of like intradisciplinary is working with your own team and interdisciplinary is collaborating with other teams like outside of your own team. So I thought that that was super helpful. And I clearly still remember it because I'm telling you about it now. That's a good way to remember it. In school-based pediatrics, there are many models of service delivery that may be different from other pediatric settings. The first is the direct model, which is when the therapist is the primary service provider for the child. The integrated model is when the therapist interacts with the student, teacher, aid, and family and services are provided in the learning environment. Several people are involved in providing services for this child. The consultative model is when the therapist interacts in the learning environment with appropriate members of the educational team. Instruction and demonstration is provided without direct intervention. The monitoring model is when the physical therapist shares information and provides instruction to team members, maintains regular contact with the child to check on status, and assumes responsibility for the outcome of the intervention. School-based collaboration is a team process that focuses on the student, family, education, and related service partners. It should be a part of all service delivery models. The relational goal-oriented model addresses the how of service delivery and incorporates relationship-based practice with goal orientation. In my personal experience in a school, the service delivery models that you see most often include the direct model and consultative model. When determining if school-based physical therapy services are required, the main question to ask yourself is the following. Is the physical therapist's knowledge and expertise a necessary component of the child's educational program in order for them to achieve identified outcomes? What is generally supposed to happen is that the goals are identified as to what the child needs to do to best access their school environment, and then related service needs are determined based on this. In the real world, this doesn't always happen this way, but it's generally what is supposed to happen. Skilled intervention by a physical therapist must be necessary for the child to best access their educational environment 
for services to be warranted. Evaluation must occur every three years unless the parent and the local educational agency agree that a reevaluation is not necessary. Some examples of evaluations could include the school functional assessment, the school outcomes measure, and the pediatric evaluation of disability inventory for the PD. The book then goes on to the book then goes over a detailed explanation of the IEP. I am not going to go over this because we have gone over it multiple times in past episodes, but if you would like more information, go to this section of the book. One part of the IEP are the annual measurable goals. The goals are created by each service provider and must directly relate to the child's access to their education and school environment. They are designed to be achieved within a school year or sometimes within a year's time, depending on the IEP. Documentation and progress is required and important to share with the family. I write progress notes four times a year, similar to a report card that gets sent home and shared with families. The goal should be SMART goals. A good option for children with significant disabilities could be to use the goal attainment scaling, which we've talked about previously. However, this is not always applied in real life practice. Each long-term goal or the overarching goal is composed of short-term benchmarks or objectives underneath. An example of a goal for an IEP could be the following. Johnny will propel his power wheelchair 200 feet from his classroom to the gym within five minutes given minimal verbal cueing. Benchmarks could be increments of feet, such as starting with 100 feet and then a second benchmark being 150 or in time, so 15 minutes, 10 minutes, et cetera. Frequency of services is also something that school-based physical therapists need to determine. The different frequencies include intensive, frequent, periodic, and intermittent. Intensive describes a highly concentrated amount of PT intervention provided over an episode of care. This could be weekly sessions lasting longer than 45 minutes or more, or a frequency of two times or more per week. Frequent is a moderate amount of PT intervention at consistent intervals. This could be weekly or bi-monthly sessions lasting less than 45 minutes. Periodic is a lower amount of PT interventions that is regularly scheduled for a specified number of minutes of an episode of care. This could be one to two times per quarter for 20 minutes each per session. Intermittent is a low amount of PT intervention provided irregularly or when needed over an episode of care. This could be two to five times per school year for a total of 60 minutes. There is a great chart in Campbell that details each of these with specific examples. It's table 31.4. Intervention in the school environment is generally the same as any other setting, so I'm not going to go over much here. One big thing to remember is that you must be working towards the annual goals and that the services must be assisting the child in achieving independence in the school environment to the best of their ability. Also, Something of note is that services must be provided in accordance with the IEP. This includes frequency, duration, and the setting. For example, 
the IEP of the student may read that the child receives physical therapy twice a week for 30 minutes per session in the classroom. This means that the child must be seen twice a week for those 30 minutes per session, and the services must be provided in the classroom. The chapter finishes off with transition planning. Sheila will go over transition a little more in depth in a bit. We also went over a worksheet about transition planning in a previous Factsheet Friday episode. The biggest things to remember with transition planning is that it must occur from EI to preschool, preschool to school age, and once the child turns 16. Transition assessments and services must begin no later than the first IEP to be in effect when the child is 16 years of age or younger, if determined appropriate by the IEP team. At my school, they generally start preparing for this around age 13, but it isn't considered true transition planning until they are 16. When they're 16 is when they receive true transition services from a transition specialist. This is just specific to my school, but it kind of gives you a little idea of the context of how it's used in a school. Some issues described in school-based therapy include shortages of PTs, the service delivery system, professional roles, and making sure physical therapy is educationally relevant. From my own experience, I can attest to all of these. We never have enough PTs in order to attend to every need of the child because our schedules tend to be so full or we have so many students on our caseload. Professional roles also always tend to overlap, which at times can be a good thing when other disciplines are implementing things that you're working on into their sessions, but other times it can get a little hairy. Lastly, sometimes it's challenging to decrease a child from PT services when you know that they need PT services in general, but you can't justify that they're needed for them to function fully in their school environment. This tends to happen with a lot of my older kids with CP that really plateau in their gross motor skills. It's really hard for me to ju justify decreasing them when I know they could benefit from PT, but they've reached their max capacity of what they can do independently in school. Wow, that was so much information. If anyone has questions, feel free to reach out. I can answer to the best of my ability. We are clearly approaching the end of our content for this season, and we are moving on to the transition to adulthood information. We also reviewed some of this in our Fact Sheet Friday, Episode 22. IDEA of 2004 mandates transition planning to prepare youth with the knowledge and skills for adult roles. A consensus statement advocates a written healthcare transition plan for all youth with disabilities by the age of 14. Youth with disabilities often have needs for personal assistance, assistive technology, instruction in self-advocacy, and development of skills needed for post-secondary education and employment. As providers, we really need to partner with youth and their families in advocating a strengths-based approach. Collaboration among youth with disabilities, their families, and professionals is essential for successful transition, and research shows that parents want more information regarding their child's skill level, work options, adult services, community living, and types of family support. 
parents associated successful transitions with having an occupation or functional role in society, moving out of the home apart from the parent or caregiver, and skills required for success in daily functioning. Self-determination is defined as the combination of skills, knowledge, and beliefs that enable a person to engage in goal-directed, self-regulated, autonomous behavior. The transition process should involve a gradual shift in responsibilities from the service provider to the parent family and finally to the young person. This responsibility shift includes self-management of the health condition. To the fullest extent possible, youth with disabilities are encouraged to actively participate in the transition from a pediatric to an adult medical home. They need the ability to communicate with healthcare providers and to instruct personal care providers in their needs. Equally important are skills for health promotion, injury prevention, and prevention of secondary impairments. Wellness and secondary prevention is a huge topic. The book states that two new objectives for Healthy People 2020 was to, one, reduce the proportion of people with disabilities reporting delays in receiving primary and periodic preventative care because of barriers, and two, to increase the proportion of parents and other caregivers of youth with disabilities aged 12 to 17 years old who report engaging in transition planning from pediatric to adult healthcare. So even starting earlier than that transition planning and education is required. Finding an adult medical home can definitely be a barrier. Typically, people with a lifelong disability have less access to medical providers in the community than the general population. In addition, they have less preventative care, more emergency medical visits, less insurance coverage, and little to no experience managing their own healthcare decisions. Finding an adult specialty doctor that is familiar with these pediatric type conditions can be difficult. There is just a lack of access to primary and specialty providers. Like I said before, it's recommended that all youth with special healthcare needs have a written healthcare transition plan by age 14 to identify appropriate healthcare professionals, provide guidelines for primary as well as preventative care, and to ensure developmentally appropriate transition services. Transition plans should include the expected age for transition to adult health care, the responsibilities of the youth, family, or caregiver, and the responsibilities of the medical providers in preparing for the transition. This process includes assessing for transition readiness, planning a dynamic and longitudinal process for accomplishing realistic goals, education of all involved parties and empowerment of the youth in areas of self-care, documenting to enable ongoing evaluation and sharing of information with adult care providers. Promoting lifetime physical fitness is critical for the prevention of secondary complications resulting from childhood onset health conditions. We know that in people with chronic disabling conditions, regular physical activity can improve stamina, muscle strength, and quality of life and prevent disease. The ADA legislates equitable access of community recreation programs for persons with disabilities. Competencies for a successful transition from secondary education include knowledge of self, including one's health condition, 
and the ability to access services and supports for community living. It is also important that an individual can identify specific supports needed for living, post-secondary education, or work. Some common community living skills may include meal prep, shopping, paying bills, doing laundry, and or the hiring, managing, and firing of personal attendants. Skill sets for work might include things like the ability to interact with people providing attendant care and to describe or request necessary job accommodations. PTs working in educational settings are encouraged to anticipate opportunities to be included in life skill programs for students with physical disabilities. PTs in the clinic and hospital practice are encouraged to communicate and coordinate with educators and professionals providing related services and to interact with community organizations and agencies to address transition needs. Post-secondary education is another path and students with disabilities are participating in post-secondary education. Options include vocational or technical schools, community college, liberal arts colleges, and state or private universities. Recommendations for a successful transition to post-secondary education include things like making sure the student is successful in general education classes to determine if they can learn academic content and meet teacher and workload requirements with or without accommodations. Transition planning should begin in the late elementary years and be sustained throughout high school. Students must be their own advocates and they must actively engage in the career development process. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and the ADA ensure non-discriminatory protection for students with disabilities on campuses of higher education. Section 504 stipulates that any institution that receives federal funding must ensure access for all persons with disabilities and specifically stipulates equal opportunity. The ADA mandates that all public and private businesses and institutions provide reasonable accommodations for persons with disabilities. We previously discussed employment in Fact Sheet Friday, Episode 22, so we will just quickly review. Three functional areas vital to job identification and job performance are self-care, physical functioning and mobility, and communication. Employment options for people with disabilities can be viewed on a continuum from least restrictive without supports to most restrictive, things like segregated programs with supports. We talk about all of these in Fact Sheet Friday, episode 22, so refer to that for definitions. Some strategies for achieving successful and meaningful economic independence are to teach all students self-determination skills expand the mission of programs for 18 to 21 year olds, focus on interagency collaboration, improve preparation of personnel, and focus on the positive outcomes of supported employment. Some examples of work-life skills include getting ready for work, accessing transportation, keeping a schedule, learning appropriate work behavior and dress, developing communication with supervisors and workmates, eating and toileting, and directing attendance if and when necessary. PTs can incorporate all of these learning skills for work transition into therapeutic interventions. Gaining mobility transportation skills should be addressed as part of the student's IEP and the transition plan or a patient's participation goal when services are provided in a clinical setting. 
skills such as using mobility devices independently and safely, accessing public transportation, identifying landmarks, and asking for directions can be developed as part of a community-based training program. The ADA mandates public transportation accessibility, but we all know that barriers are going to still exist. Transition planning involves communication and coordination among several systems and service providers. Within the healthcare system, the focus is on transition from the pediatric to the adult healthcare system. Within the education system, the focus is on preparing graduates for community living, post-secondary education, employment, and social and community participation. Practices for successful transition include one, development of student self-efficacy and social skills, two, community and paid work experiences, three, technology to improve accessibility and accommodations, four, secondary curricular reform, five, vocational career education, six, supports for post-secondary education, seven, service coordination and interagency collaboration, and eight, individualized backward planning in which the outcome is first identified and then the transition plan is developed. Remember, IDEA of 2004 defined the age of transition to 16, but it can be earlier. And remember that position statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which stated that 14 was actually better. Transition should be a results-oriented process focusing on improving students' academic and functional achievement to promote post-school outcomes. Accountability was emphasized by requiring transition plans to include appropriate, measurable post-secondary goals. Local education agencies are required to provide students with a summary of their academic and functional performance, along with recommendations for post-secondary environments upon exiting from school. Transition planning begins with determining the student's interests, abilities, strengths, and needs. Family and professionals should discuss future options with the student. Transition planning is completed at the IEP-ITP meeting. Students should be involved in this meeting, actively participate, and lead the meeting when able. The team determines the type of transition services necessary to promote movement to post-school environments. And finally, the transition plan includes measurable goals developed by the team. PTs are encouraged to prepare youth to be active participants and ideally leaders in developing their IEP, participate in the transition planning process when invited by the student, provide consultation and direct services as needed for seating, transfers, mobility, self-care, wellness, and fitness, instruction for personal care attendance, assistive technology, and environmental modifications. And last, Work collaboratively with school personnel to ensure that health and physical function are adequately addressed in the school-based transition plan. Critical skills that might pertain to PT include community mobility, use of public transportation, use of restroom, positioning and mobility instruction for personal care attendance, positioning for work or post-secondary education activities, and proficiency with assistive technology. PTs working in educational settings may provide consultative services during the IEP-ITP meetings. Therapists may provide direct services during times of the day when the student is on the job, at a post-secondary school, 
or participating in community recreation. Therapists also provide information and instruction of others, including healthcare providers, educators, and family members. Remember, the Guide to Physical Therapy Practice states that PTs should provide interventions across the lifespan in the following areas, environmental barriers, self-care and home management, work, community and leisure integration, and orthotic, protective, and supportive devices. Three environments that PTs are encouraged to consider during the transition years are work or post-secondary education settings, adult living environments, and community settings for leisure or social participation. Exam and intervention must be approached from a perspective of future inclusive community living and work. Collaboration of youth, parents, and professionals leads to development of an ITP in the education environment in addition to PT's plan of care. PTs are encouraged to consider long-term person-centered goals for activity and participation and short-term person-centered objectives that address body functions and structures, personal and environmental factors. Sounds a lot like the ICF model, if you ask me. Okay, that was a lot, but we got through it. Some of that stuff I think is stuff that gets breezed over a little bit because it's a little bit more based on the education environment, a little bit on the transition, and then a little bit on adulthood. So hopefully this helps you guys and hopefully those chapters from Campbell help you. There's also some really great fact sheets that we go over. So make sure you're checking those out. But I think this stuff is important and worthwhile. So that's why we're making sure we're covering it. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.